in Romans chapter 1 verse 5. So we just turn back to Romans chapter 1 verse 5 to remember, just to help us remember what we studied last week. And then we'll turn to the text we're looking at this morning. So first of all, Romans 1 verse 5 through 6. Which reads, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now last week we unpacked each part of that and uh, I'm not going to go over old ground again this morning. But the important thing that I want to highlight there is what we should have taken away from last week, which is this obedience of the faith. And how for those of us who are born again, who have received the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that Holy Spirit, taking hold of our hearts, changing our minds, changing our dispositions, and giving us new desires, is indeed the obedience of the faith to submit ourselves as slaves to our Lord Jesus Christ and to his every utterance and word that he has decreed through his inerrant Holy Scripture. And we looked at many different examples of that and we paid a lot of attention to make sure that we didn't fall into the religious camp of starting to see our salvation based upon works. But we looked at how true salvation brings about works. True saving faith brings about a a deep, deep desire to be obedient and obedient to the faith, obedient to Christ, obedient to our calling and obedient to what God has for each and every one of us in our lives After we pick up our cross, we deny ourselves and we follow after Christ. For those of us who were at midweek on Wednesday night, we looked at an example of that through the Gospel of Luke when the the encounter of the rich young ruler with Christ and how this man who seemingly had every single attribute that religion would say made him perfect, Christ could see his heart. And Christ could see that he was unwilling to give up his deeper desire, the deepest treasure that he had, which was his money. And also not only that there, but we looked at how that would have had a wider influence into having a fear of what his family would think. The fact that losing all this money would have more than likely been an inheritance given down through generation and generation. And that he would have to forego all the things that his family indeed could have held dear. We also understood that as a leader, he would most than likely have been a leader of the synagogue. So he might have even had given that up whenever Christ said to him, come and follow me. In other words, it is the understanding of what the true gospel is that we will give up absolutely anything. That Christ demands of us for the sake of being his disciple. And we finished off Wednesday night with looking at Peter who said, Did we not give up houses? And he names other things in Christ then lists and says, Anyone who gives up husband, wife, father, mother, mother, son or daughter for, for my name's sake will be inherited on this earth and in the heavens to come. And we impact the unthinkable thought of how we could give someone such a harsh gospel how we could give somebody such a gospel that demands everything and yet we said on Wednesday night that is the gospel how it is not right for us to go into different lands it is not right for us to go into other nations and people groups and demand that they indeed turn over everything that they have to Christ and by doing so particularly if we look at say the Muslim faith that that wife 
If she turns to Christ, may never see her children again. May never see her husband again. May be left destitute. May be left without absolutely any way to provide for herself. May be beaten, mocked, whatever it may be. And yet, that is the gospel that we bring into the Muslim community, the Hindu community, the, the complete pagan community that has surrounded us. And how for many of us, we can fall into the trap, as we looked at last week, of whenever we come to faith, do we actually believe that the Holy Spirit is able to keep us from sin? How the Holy Spirit is able to keep us from falling? And how for many of us, we can fall into this understanding of, well, we're never going to be perfect. We're always going to fall. Where we should be clinging to the truth that we should have a deep desire every single day to walk out of the spiritual nursery, to start to grow in Christ, become strong in Christ, and to understand that at the point of our can, uh, to, of a point of salvation, we understand whatever Christ demands of me, I may be ignorant of today, and I have grace for that. But the moment in which I am enlightened, the moment in which I see the depths of my depravity and how sin is shown to me through God's holy word, I will rejoice in the knowledge that I can give it up and be all the more sanctified for Christ. That is what it means to be obedient to the faith. And we're going to see some of this obedience to the faith through John the Baptist. A man who is listed to be the greatest man born of a woman. And yet, those of us who are the least of the kingdom of heaven, which is anyone in this room who is a confessing follower of Christ, redeemed and set apart through your repentance and turning from your sin, you indeed are greater than this man. Although he is the greatest man born of, of a woman, anyone, the least of those within the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. And I want to know why, and I hope you do too. So let's turn now to the passage we're going to look at this morning, which is Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. We looked at the last time we were together, verses 1 through 3. We'll read over those briefly, and then we'll study verses 4 through 6 this morning. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came... Preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem And all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So just before we unpack what God has for us this morning, let us come once again and ask him in prayer to guide us through this passage. Father, I come before you as do we all. And we ask, Lord, this morning that we take away the true meaning of this text. We see, Father God, what it means to be a man of God through John the Baptist. We pray, Father, that as we desire each and every Sunday that we come here, that we pay you tribute, that we worship you and glorify your name. But also, Lord, that we can be chastened, admonished, lifted up, Father, by your word, and ultimately changed by it, Father. We ask, Lord, through this study this morning, that we be changed by your word. As we pray throughout each Sunday, we know, Lord, that it is indeed sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask, Father, may it penetrate our hearts this morning. 
May it penetrate our minds this morning. And may we see with complete clarity, with eyes given to us by the Holy Spirit, what indeed it means to obtain, to hold on to, and to submit, to submit ourselves to the faith, Father. God, give us obedience, we pray this morning, as your children. Help us to see the glories of your ways. And, Father God, the folly of thinking that our ways, in any shape or form, is better than your ways. Help us, Father God, this morning we pray. We ask in our Lord's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we read in verse 4, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. We know that this is a shadowing and an echo of Elijah, whose spirit John comes in. He is the uh, promised second coming of Elijah, if they had have accepted him. And the last time we looked at what that means and how Elijah indeed will have to come back again. And that as we read in Revelation 11. But this morning what I want to look at is why this is in here and why did John wear a garment of camel's hair. And the first thing we have to understand with obedience to the faith is self-control. That is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is the main contributing factor to how we are going to walk in our holiness. It is the main contributing factor to how we have evidence that we are indeed born again. That we indeed have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. And we see this self-control depicted here in John's attire. A garment of camel's hair. Camel's hair being a very robust material. By no means fashionable. He was not in keeping with the decor or the trendiness of the day. He cares little of what other men are wearing. He simply is wearing what is needed for a man who is completely devoted for the inauguration of of the first coming of Christ. He is in the wilderness awaiting the promised time. And indeed his patience is on display and his self-control is on display. He is not of this world. He is indeed a true citizen of heaven. He cares little as to what the fashion of the time is. He's not going to be swayed by. He's not going to be driven by. He's not going to care about. So indeed his desire to be relevant is not in his mind. His his practical desire to have an outer garment to keep him warm. And something that is durable indeed is evident here. His self-control is seen even as it lists his belt. It is not spangled. It is not glorious. It is not made of any other material apart from the the most robust material at that time, leather. It again is not there to be fashionable. It is there to, to, to serve as a purpose. As to keep his loins girded up if need be. And to hold the garment around his waist. Leather is the material to depict the fact that he only cares about what is what and has longevity. His treasures is not in the material. His treasures are in the heavenly. He has little desire, no care over how he is perceived apart from what comes out of his mouth. He does not desire to be relevant as many leaders of the church and many others like to have. He only is fixated on his calling. What is his calling? Turn with me very quickly before we come back to this to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 15. 
This is John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, being told by an angel of God that, that indeed he will have a son. In fact, we'll read from verse 13. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit, Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in spirit and power of Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Self-control filled with the Holy Spirit. We see again the self-control here based upon the fact that John was to be and have a Nazarene vow. He who was God's man. He who had a special calling. The, the, the shepherding in and inaugurating in the kingdom of heaven. One prepared to go into the wilderness with one message of repentance. One message of turning. One message of getting ready. One message that is indeed the echo of the church today. And yet here we see depicted certain attributes that he must not do. He was not to drink wine or strong drink. And wine here is, as we looked at in 1 Timothy, mixed wine. Six parts of water to about one part of wine. Only there and only evident as a way to purify the water of the dead. He is to be a man that doesn't even take water that has been purified by alcohol. He is a man who is not meant to even touch strong drink, which would be wine in its full strength. This is the attribute of John, and he holds true to it, as we know, because we read of him here, and he would not be in the position that he would be in if he did not have the self-awareness and self-control to turn aside even from alcohol. A massive problem within the Christian church today. An unwillingness to give ourselves over to even that attribute of a godliness that is and has Christ's character. Self-control in what he consumes. Self-control with what he wears. Self-control to where we find him as he's in the wilderness. And even self-control which says that his food was locusts and wild honey. We see that epitomized. Whenever God calls the nation of Israel out of Egypt. He brings them out of slavery and bondage. Making clay bricks for Pharaoh with little straw. Taking them right out of the whipping. Taking them out of all the depravity that they faced in Egypt and lack of freedom. Brought them and conquered Pharaoh's army through the waters into the wilderness and at that time of the wilderness rather than going to the promised land they kept having to go around and around continually not grateful for the provisions of God we're tired of manna we wish to go back to Egypt because we want to feast sumptuously on all the things that we can have there food was not his temptation he was in the wilderness He had clothing only for what was practical. He had a calling that kept him from certain aspects 
of blessings as wine is that the Lord gives the people of Israel to purify their water at that time, for which we have no purpose of today. And yet he is not falling down, being tempted by the devil to leave his calling for the sake of food. He doesn't care about relevance. He doesn't care about his clothing. And he most certainly does not care even about what food that the holy almighty God has given this man who's going to inaugurate and bring in the kingdom. He's turned aside. He's died to himself. He's not eating and sumptuously eating the things that are bountifully provided by others. His eyes are not on the Pharisees in Jerusalem. The men who call themselves to be God's men. The people who were there to keep hold of God's law. The Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests. Who ate the best meat. The fattened calves that were meant to be given over to the Lord. Who dressed in fine clothing. Who had all the entourage that was to follow someone who was called to be set apart. No, he is a lonely man. He is alone with the Holy Spirit. He is not known apart from one thing. His message. He cares little if others give him the respect that he deserves. He cares little about the entourage. He cares little that no one is sending their children out to be discipled by him. His eyes are not on the cultural prevailing message of what it means to be a leader at that time. He has no money. He has no home. He has no plethora of food and he most certainly doesn't have clothes that show that he is a man of God but he has something he has the Holy Spirit he has the fruits of the Spirit he has the character of the Spirit and we even see that displayed in his humbleness as a man of God turn with me very quickly to the Gospel of John chapter 3 Verse 30. Context here is the baptism of Christ and the exaltation of John to all those who are now gathering around him because he is known and perceived to be a prophet. And this is John's message in the height and the pinnacle of everyone coming out to him, which we're going to see. Verse 30 says. He must, being Christ, increase, but I must decrease. John says, it's not about me. It's not about who I am or what I'm doing. It's all about Christ. It's all about his kingdom. I'm not even worthy to tie Christ's shoes. And yet this is at the height of the next verse that we're going to read in Matthew's account in chapter 3. Go back to it, if you will, in verse 5. Where it reads, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. He's been prepared. It's been 30 some years. As we know, he is the cousin of Christ and he was born shortly before Christ. 30 years in the wilderness, 30 years getting ready to prepare the way. 30 years of eating locusts and honey. 30 years of no recognition. 
30 years of no entourage, 30 years of looking continually towards those who call themselves men of God and seeing how they dress and seeing all the provisions and seeing how they feast and seeing the fact that they're in the temple and seeing all the entrapments that go along with it. And here he is 30 years in and finally all of Judea are coming. Jerusalem in its entirety is emptying and coming out to him. And amidst all of it, even if Christ himself comes and succumbs to the baptism of John, he immediately points everyone who is there, not to himself, but to Christ. It's not about me. It's not about my ministry. It's not about my entourage of disciples now. You are to follow him. I am simply a messenger sent in the wilderness of this time who is ready for the inauguration of a kingdom. And I have one message. And that message is not that you are to have a relationship with this man. The message is not that you can have your best life now. The message is not that you can have an identity The message is not that you can have Christ and still live in the world. The message is repent. That's it. We read of it in verse 2. Where in verse 1 it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. Turn. Stop. Realize how sinful you are. And turn to Christ. It is the echo and the message of the gospel that we proclaim today. It is why we who are the church are indeed the least of us greater than John the Baptist. For we proclaim the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. We proclaim the fullness that that John the Baptist had not yet known. Of Christ's sinless life. His substitutionary atonement. Death upon the cross. His second coming. And the empowerment of the Holy Spirit for everyone who turns and believes. To be able to live a life of holiness and righteousness. The ability to turn from our wants and our desires. The ability to have the Holy Spirit from which John had from the womb. That kept him, shepherded him and guided him throughout all of his life. This is the gospel being displayed. He is not making friends. He is not pandering. He is not watering it down as we're going to see next week whenever the Pharisees come out. He is gracious, he is merciful but he is also bold and courageous like a lion. And he lets the religious leaders of that day know exactly who they are as a brood of vipers. But he comes... Preparing the way, telling the ground, preaching repentance, and that's the gospel. The fullness of it for which we know today. And if you think about the context of what he's doing here, it is unimaginable for anyone who is a Jew. What he says is, and we read of it in verse 5, in Jerusalem and all of Judea and the region of Jordan were coming out to him and they were baptized. No Jew up to this point would ever have been baptized. This is not the Leviticus cleansing that we read about. The washing of hands. The ceremonial washing that we see before we go into the temple. This was a one time baptism. This was the realization that just you as a Jew. Even though you were the offspring and the lineage of Abraham meant nothing. The only people who got baptized at this time were proselyte Gentiles who desired to be Jews. They were the ones that had to be baptized. They had to be baptized to be brought in and grafted in to the Jewish faith. 
no Jew, the rightful heir of Abraham, would ever have got baptized. And yet this is what they're doing. Why? Because John is preaching repentance. He's saying, unless you repent. And you cannot repent unless you know your sins. Unless you understand that the law was given to you to show how in depth and how in poverty you are to sin. And how you need the saviour that is coming. And he is coming and his kingdom is coming. And your heritage won't save you. Your religion won't save you. Your temple attendance won't save you. Your sacrifices won't save you. It will only be your repentance. You must turn from your ways and turn from sin. That's the gospel. And these people come from Jerusalem. And they come from all of Judea and all of the Jordan. And they come as Jews. Apparent rightful heirs to the kingdom. And they hear John preaching. And they come underneath the weight of the Holy Spirit. And they see that religion does not save. Heritage does not save. Lineage does not save. Works does not save. And they see their sin. And they realize that unless they repent, they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. It's the gospel. And yet for many today, we don't preach that. The church no longer wants to preach that you are a sinner and that you need to be saved. That you are a sinner and that you need to repent. That you are not good. That your works do not cover you. And that your church attendance means nothing. Your tithing means nothing. Unless you believe and have faith in Christ. Who is coming. Who is going to inaugurate the kingdom. And it doesn't matter if you're a Presbyterian, Baptist, Methodist, whatever. It only matters whether or not you truly have believed, repented of your sins. And have brought about your obedience to the faith. They were baptized by him in the river Jordan. Underline it, confessing their sins. They knew they were sinners. A people who, in all intents and purposes, shouldn't have. They had the right heritage. They had the city that is Jerusalem. They had the temple. They had the sacrificial system. They had the law. And yet they come knowing full well that that is not giving them peace. That is not covering the depravity of their sin. That they have to confess it. They have to repent from it. They have to turn and put their full faith and weight into what is yet not known even to them. Which is why we're greater. That Christ would come. That he would, his life and ministry would be all about the cross. And that because of the cross, their faith at that moment in repenting of their sin would be sufficient in a gospel they had not yet heard. And for those of us who know the cross and who know the gospel and proclaim it just as John does, as Paul said in Romans, that we are indeed apostles, preachers and proclaimers of the gospel by grace to bring about faith or the obedience of the faith. We see here a man of God. We see here what it truly means to be a follower of Christ in the gospel of which we saw on Wednesday night this rich ruler who had done everything from his birth with regards to the law, was not willing to give up his money 
Where is our treasure this morning? Where are we this morning? Do we believe that we indeed are sinners, wretched sinners, saved upon grace? And are we therefore, in light of his mercy, in light of the cross, with all that we can, praying fervently and asking the Holy Spirit to cause us to be obedient to the faith? Are we preaching like John? Repent. Are we softening the gospel? Are we giving people a half truth and a half gospel and leaving out the reality that they indeed are sinful? It worked here, it's worked throughout church history, and it works today. As we get to the weeks to come, Paul will say, Indeed, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it alone is the power unto salvation. There is only one way for people to come to repentance, and it's through the proclamation of they are sinners. And God indeed is gracious and loving. That they deserve hell, but he is merciful by sending Christ to die upon the cross in their stead. And if they would but turn from their wretched, evil, demonic ways, they could walk in holiness and righteousness and truth. Not by their works, least anyone may boast, but by the finished work of the cross and the going of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit, which is better for the disciples and for us. This is how we walk in holiness. This is how we walk as a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a woman filled with the Holy Spirit. We have clothes, yes, but do not allow the devil to take you away from the cross through desire for clothes. We have food, yes, and we can enjoy it, yes, 100%, but do not allow the devil for you to give up your birthright like Esau did for a bowl of beans. We have homes, yes. We have jobs, yes. But do not allow those jobs or those homes or even family to take you away from what your true calling is. If you want to test it, how much time do you devote or I devote to things that are temporal? How much discipline do we apply to a diet, to a lifestyle, to a job, to the hours that we spend away from family for the sake of money? Weighed up to the amount of hours and discipline you use for studying God's word and for living a life of godliness. What's taking us away from the cross? There's nothing wrong with food or clothes or jobs or homes. But if we were asked to give any one of them up, what would we say? I can live in the wilderness and eat locusts and honey, for my identity is Christ, my master is Christ. My life is his. In whatever way he wishes me to live it, I will live it. John, you cannot drink wine or, or strong drink. If that is God's commandment, praise him. You cannot live in the city of Jerusalem. You must live in the wilderness. That's fine. You cannot dress in the attire accustomed to others. That's fine. You cannot eat what others eat. That's fine. You will be beheaded for the sake of my gospel. That's fine. You will lose all your followers to another. That's fine. Your ministry will have to come to an end so that Christ's ministry can live. That's fine. And when it's finished, all will leave you. That's fine. Christ is sufficient. Christ is my treasure. Christ is my all. And here he comes, of which I am not worthy to tie his shoes. We're going to look at it in the weeks to come when the Pharisees come on board and what John says that there is two baptisms in this life. 
There is a baptism of water and a baptism of fire and every single individual will have to face one. It's not enough to get wet. The baptism of water is whenever you truly give your life, soul and heart and body and mind to Christ and you enter into the waters of baptism as an outward sign of your complete and utter dependency upon him to death and water. Or there's a baptism of fire which is everlasting torment and the lake of fire prepared for the devil and the demons for all of those who will not and shall not ever repent. The baptisms are one and two, water and fire. Our role, our job is to go and to proclaim the gospel that is repentance, turning from your way and your sin and giving yourself to Christ and receiving the baptism that is of water so that you on that day of judgment will not face the baptism of fire. That everything is temporal and everything is fleeting. It does not matter what clothes we have when we die or what homes we have in our die or what money we have in our bank account when we die or if we're beheaded or die peacefully in a nursing home or whether or not we're eaten by cannibals. The only thing that matters is do we have a heart that has been changed by the Holy Spirit and are we truly authentic followers of Christ saved by grace, kept by grace until we finish the race. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of John the Baptist. And that's what true repentance is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning by your grace a portion, Lord, of clarity to see that we are not here for the pleasures of worldliness or the perceived greatness that is given to others. We are here for your greatness. We are here for your glory. We are here, Father, for whatever it is that you have for each and every one of us, we will give you praise and thanksgiving so that all can see that we, Father God, truly are and able to do all things through Christ. That that passage, Father God, that we read means that whether or not we are poor, Christ is sufficient. If we're rich, Christ is sufficient. If we simply have a covering of camel hair and a belt around our waist, Christ is indeed sufficient. If we have to turn from small things in this life that others do, Christ is sufficient. That we are, if we are called to give up everything that we have, Christ is sufficient. Help us, Father God, to be indeed ambassadors and preachers of repentance. Help us indeed, Father God, to be obedient to the faith. And we pray, Father God, that we cling to the reality that it's all done by the Holy Spirit. But Father, give us the heart and the disposition this morning to desire it more and more. Help us, Father God, in the midst of our complete ignorance, Lord, of what your word demands of each and every follower of Christ, that as we see, Lord, clearly in your scripture, we desire it. We turn from the things that we were once ignorant over And we thank you for your grace. And we thank you for the strength not to do it any longer. Help us, Father God, whatever lie that anyone in this church or anyone listening online is in, Father God, that they believe that they cannot shake, that they believe has a stronghold in their life, that they believe cannot be or ever given up. Father, help us to believe that in Christ all things are possible, that we are not our own selves, That we, Father God, are born again. 
that we can, Lord, and indeed shall lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely. Help us to believe, Father, that you are indeed able to keep us from falling. Thank you, Father, for times whenever we become less humble and puffed up in our own righteousness, you allow us once again to fall and stumble, to keep us contrite and humble of spirit, all while covering us once again with grace. But Father, we desire more. We desire more of you and less of us. We desire, Father God, those words to be read of John the Baptist. We must decrease. You must increase in our life, Father, so that all can know that you are Master and Lord. Father, we praise you for this time this morning around your word. And we ask you, Lord, to help us, to guide us, and to give us the strength to turn away from what we consciously know we should not be doing. Give us the strength this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll stand, we'll close in worship.